everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Starving for Insight podcast. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by my friend, Nancy Hensley. She's the Chief Digital Officer over at IBM Analytics. We met, you know, in 2017 at the Growth Hackers Conference and reunited this year in 2018. Nancy, she spoke at 2017's conference and her talk blew me away. And she's doing such great badass, I have to say badass stuff over at IBM Analytics that I had to have her on the show. So, you know, I'll let Nancy say hi and tell you a little bit more about herself, but this is a good episode, folks. Thanks. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, yeah, so I work at IBM in the in our analytics division where we have lots of great products that help people leverage their data and uh, get it ready for artificial intelligence and, and data science. And my job is to actually take those products and make them much more consumable through digital. So it's a great challenge that I love getting up doing every single day. And I bet they're glad to have you there too. What did you do before? What's your background, Nancy? Uh, what did you do before IBM? Have you always been in marketing? I no, I I'm one of those people that has jumped between product and marketing for quite some time over my years at IBM. Um, I remember when my boss would ask me when I ran marketing, you know, what do you want to do, product or marketing? And I would just say yes. And she's like, stop it. You have to choose. That's the beautiful thing about digital and growth is you don't have to choose, right? Because uh, the product is the experience. So that's why I love it so much. But prior to IBM, I worked for McDonald's Corporation. I was a consultant and, and then an employee. And that's when I really fell in love with data and analytics because what we did was use um, algorithms and modeling to decide where we would actually put the next McDonald's. We were very, very ahead of the curve back then doing spatial analysis long before it was cool to do it. Um, and I just fell in love with with the whole data and analytics side of the world. And so that's when I joined IBM so I could actually do it full time. So not to divest too much, but that's really interesting. So what were you doing with McDonald's and when were you doing this? I love hearing when you were ahead of the curve. <laughs> So I did a couple things. I don't know this story. <laughs> you don't know the story. So I did a couple things uh, around data. I was in the international side of the business, and we were working to how we would get data from the basically the POS systems and to our back office systems so that we could actually analyze the data and do more with it. That's where I started to basically play around with data a little bit more. Um, but in the later years, we I ran a team that did all the spatial analysis. So most people don't know that at the time, things might have changed now, but McDonald's was the biggest real estate holder in the United States next to the Catholic Church. So picking the right real estate for where we would put a store was pretty important from a revenue perspective. And we had all sorts of models to do the analysis for that, but it was all done manually. And so what my team and I did was uh, built an automated uh, GIS or spatial information model that the real estate agents could go scout different pieces of real estate, um, mark them on their application. Then they'd come back to the office. They would upload all all the coordinates of the locations that they scouted. We would run the model overnight and then spit out this report that had all the analysis of if we put a McDonald's there, what would it do for us? That was pretty cool. I and mean, we optimized their time. You know, it was amazing how much more we could look at. Because back then, actually, our, our um, competitor was Walgreens because they were starting to do these standalone stores and they were looking at the same pieces of real estate that we were. And that was for McDonald's, like having the right location was really huge. 
Yeah, no, the Catholic Church and McDonald's. Interesting. I did not know that. And then Walgreens. Interesting. If you don't mind me asking, just for those who don't know, can you explain what the spatial model would be and what kind of analysis that is? Sure. Basically, we would analyze a piece of property um, for for a different parts of the model on a couple different ways. And spatial was the the way we did it. It was a much easier way for people to look at data spatially. When you look at, is there competitors in the area? Are there things that would generate business, things that would take away business? How close is the next McDonald's? And we could actually model that out all through geographic data in a, in a map-like interface. And this was just really easy to consume. And what was nice is that we would then use that core application to do other things like look at security for the stores, look at recruiting for the stores for HR. So the the spatial um, analysis using a map, which is what most people do today when they use Google for almost everything on their phone, um, was just a really easy for people to consume data and look at data because it was very intuitive and it didn't require a lot of training. Yeah, no, that makes a ton of sense. And when did you when did you guys do all this great work? Are we talking early 2000s? Yeah, early 2000s. Yeah. We started the work in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So we were really, really ahead of the curve back then. So You were really, really ahead of the curve back then. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Um, that's a really great story. One of the things I always like to ask people, given that this is the Starving for Insight podcast, is what business, and we know that insight leads to great business outcomes, what business do you most admire, Nancy? I'm really curious. So it's probably a company that most people have never heard of, but it's a company called Unshattered. And it's uh, one of my friends who was a peer of mine at IBM, another executive at IBM, left a couple of years ago to start this company. And what it does is that it works with women who have either been um, struggling with abuse of some sort, whether it was drug abuse or physical abuse, um, sex trafficked, you name it. Uh, she works with these women in a halfway house, so to speak. And they, they take discarded materials that people throw away, whether it's clothes or draperies or whatever it might be, and they make purses out of them and sell them through various um, outlets. And, you know, the business is pretty new. It's doing so much good because it's giving these women purpose. And what I love is the whole, the whole mission behind it is that they're taking discarded things, which is kind of how these women felt, and making something beautiful out of it. And it's, it's basically giving new life to these women, but it's also now a thriving business as well. I mean, they make some gorgeous purses and handbags and totes and briefcases. And, and this thing grew so quickly. In fact, um, she recently made a trek to the White House and uh, they sat with several members of the White House staff talking about the opiate addiction and what some of the things they're doing to help. But it is a, a business with a purpose that I just I really, really admire. And um, I just love everything about that company. Yeah, no, that's first, that sounds amazing. Um, and it sounds like a good place for me to go look for a new computer bag as well. I'll have to take a look at the website. And that's, that's a common theme. You know, that question almost always is answered by a mission-driven company, by a values-driven company. So it's very interesting to see that, that that's everyone answers it that way. Um, I think we're seeing a real trend there. 
towards more mission-driven companies. And those look a good trend. And those are the companies being rewarded financially as well. But I particularly love that story. So I like to ask as a follow-up to that, and the answers to this are also very interesting, what company would you consider yourself to be an undying, raving, loyal fan of, if any? I would probably have to say Apple's the closest thing. Uh, I am that person that gets up at two o'clock in the morning to uh, to order the latest and greatest Apple things. I admire their ability to do design and user experience just so well. And to me, uh, that's so important. It's driven a lot of the work that I'm focused on. And they just they just nail it, right? They know the user experience that they want to deliver, and they deliver on it. And they do it in such a differentiated way. It's nothing short of admirable. No, I'm a huge Apple fan as well. So you're an Apple junkie product. <laughs> yeah. And I said, that the, I said that the wrong way. Kind of mixed <laughs> those words up there. My apologies. Do you have an Apple Watch? Because I... I'm like on the fence about it. I do. You do. Do you, do you love it? Is it just, you know, you have to have it to be part of the ecosystem. It's just something you have or like, should I get one? So, uh, yeah, I think you should. I mean, the reason I got it was I think the product market fit that they nailed with me was that I had my regular watch and I had my Fitbit and I wore those two things all the time. And I really, really wanted mine, but the Fitbit just wasn't nailing it for me at the time from a design perspective and um, it wasn't integrated as well into my phone. And so I think the first version of the watch wasn't awesome. It was a great start, but it was, it needed to do a little bit better on some of the fitness apps that I was really interested in using it for. And I think on the second one, they, they nailed that. So uh, it got significantly better in the new updates, which can't come fast enough for me. Um, <laughs> I think they did a much better job at the exercise fitness part of it, which has made it a better competitor to Fitbit. But like I said, for me, the product market fit was that I have one thing that I wear that integrates with my phone. And, and that's uh, that was that was why I did it. No, that's really good to know. I'm a bit of an exercise junkie. So I'd be able to incorporate that into my daily life because I just don't wear the Fitbit. would be great. Absolutely. So Nancy, you also said something back there while I'm getting personal shopping advice from you about how Apple has driven a lot of the work that you do in terms of design and user experience. Would you be able to tell me a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yeah, you know, as we're looking at the digital transformation work that we're doing, the thing that I'm constantly preaching to the product team is that it's all about the experience. And, you know, for years, we've built really great products, best in class, enterprise grade, most features and functions, you know, if you if you're doing the, the tick, you know, the checkmark war against what we've built in versus what our competitors have, we always win that. And that's great. But there's kind of an evolution that's happening in the marketplace, no matter what products you're looking at. And that is that customers are trading off more features and function for consumability, accessibility, things like that. And so products that aren't really best in class, but are really consumable are starting to head in the head in the marketplace. And I think the one, the great thing about Apple is that they've managed to combine both being best in class from a technology and innovation standpoint, as well as usability. And that's where you know, our evolution really is happening is around the user experience. And I think it started with instrumenting with NPS and really starting to get that constant feedback 
um, which was a big change for us and a big push by our chairman, that's opened up a lot of eyes because in the past when we've developed products and looked for feedback, it's been with a small group of, of uh, customers that we'd meet with a couple times a year. Honestly, that's just not good enough anymore. We need the constant feedback about how we're doing in an agile world. And so it's really all about that experience. And, and that's what basically drives me every day for us to not just be building really great products, but be building really great experiences with those products because you can't, you have to have both now. No, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And I think you hit the nail on the head. What surprises me, and I know this, and time and time again, especially with you know the earlier stage, you know, the Series A, you know, tech company realm, simplicity always wins. Mm-hmm. Yep. You strip down, you make things simplified, and the metrics go up. And it's so counterintuitive, and it's so hard for product people, and it's so hard for founders. But almost every single time, simplicity wins. Absolutely. And I also think what you said about Apple combining simplicity with best in class, that is such a hard challenge to do. And I know you're trying to do that at IBM and are doing that at IBM. Do you have any advice on trying to mesh those two things together? Because simplicity and consumability don't always go, as you said, with best in class. I think it really comes down to you have to be sure that in everything you do, it's highly consumable. Um, It's really easy to get into the geeky side of innovation and um, especially for our development teams, because we get, we're really proud of some of the things that we do, especially things that are born in IBM research that we're bringing to market quickly. But those things all have to be very consumable and we can't be blinded about that. So we've got to test everything and make sure that what we put out that this new awesome technology is as consumable as it is cool. And that means a lot more serving, a lot more um, diving into the NPS comments, a lot more time in what we used to call beta, which is now just early release, a lot more focus on that feedback on in the consumability side. And, and that's a challenge, right? Because we're, we are a technology company. We've been focused on technology and patents for years. And so it is a mindset change to focus on the experience. And I think our shift to user-focused design is design thinking a few years ago has really helped that. So our design team really has led our thinking in changing that. And I think it's made a huge difference in our business. What kind of differences in your business? Can you articulate that a little bit in terms of quantification or anything like that? I think that I think it really starts with when we're in the early cycles of product development, we are much more focused on design and usability and consumability. And the design teams are now much more integrated into our development teams than they ever have been. So there there is constant reminders about that user experience. And they're also around, you know, we're doing several user experience studies in the post market as well. So we're looking at how do you take existing products and improve them significantly around that user experience, which is probably one of our best growth hacks we've got in terms of um, user experience stories that we'll get into in a little bit, I'm sure. But I think having them integrated as a part of that team, as a part of the squad, both in the early cycles of development, the design team, by the way, as well as in the growth work that we're doing has made a difference in the consumability of our products because we're thinking differently than we did before. No, absolutely. So just to clarify that, you have members of the design team not only sitting on really early on product development, but also on the growth team. Correct. 
And that's a huge change, a huge shift for us in the last few years. No, and I was going to ask you as a follow-up question, and that must be a hard shift. Was that hard to get air cover or buy-in for in terms of making that change? No, because uh, we, you know, it was several years ago where we started to really focus on design thinking led by a team out of Austin, Texas, actually. And our general manager was very much bought into this. So, I mean, from the very top of our organization, we've been focused on user-focused design um, in the way that we actually develop products. Um, and then in, when we started the growth team, they were the design team was very much a part of that as well because we needed their insight around the user experience work. No, and the reason I bring that up is I just did an episode with our mutual friend, Danny Hart, uh, the head of growth over at Growth Hackers. And one of the challenges that they have is the organizational change to adapt to a more growth process and cross-functional teams. So that's why I had to ask. I'm glad to see that that was a bit of an easier change for you. Just to kind of dig back and you talked about how you guys are making things more consumable by having the design members sit in early and always. Do you have a litmus test these days that you can share with the audience and a quick litmus test if you know you're striking that balance between best in class and consumability? I don't know if there's a litmus test. I think that if you're introducing some new features and functions and they're not being utilized by the client base, that's a big red flag. And when I look back at all the work I've done over the years from database to information integration to the data science products, we are, are the success of the products depends on, the, on how much of that new technology the customers are using. And so you start to see a pattern over a period of time about what they can actually absorb that you're putting out. And you got to pay attention to that pattern because um, we were, we went from producing major releases like once a year to, to every 18 months in the past to cranking out new products, like in some cases weekly. And you really have to make sure that your clients can actually consume all of that change because if not, it you know it's better to shift your focus to the consumability side of the work of the product rather than putting out new features and functions. And so we've been doing a lot of surveys, a lot of post uh, user testing. In fact, we've just kicked off a couple of user experience tests with the design team in the last few weeks around a couple of our products to make sure that what we are putting out there is actually being consumed and how well it's being consumed and what that experience is like. So we do take these pauses in the post-market to make sure we're doing that. We pay attention to those patterns very closely. No, absolutely. Pattern recognition is the name of the game. And if you don't mind me asking for your user testing, are you doing user testing in person? Are you using a tool online like usertesting.com or Usability Hub? What's your kind of stack there? Um, A combination of things. We do use um, usertesting.com that I know of. We also just have the design team has a method that they go through where they do a lot of the work directly. That one's that's tougher to scale because you need a ton of designers to get all the work done that you want to get done. But they, they have their own method that's tied into our design thinking method that we go through. And so I'm anxious because we've actually kicked off one of our first post product uh, market or post market design uh, experiences in the last few weeks that we've done that wasn't just focused on growth, but just post-market what's going on. So um, I'll have more to share with you about that. Um, but they're using their a lot of their own method and some tools that 
that like usertesting.com, I know, but we've got a design team that basically is highly engaged in, in working with us and, and directly working with customers as well to capture what that experience is like. No, that's fantastic. I always like to dig in a little bit there and demystify some of these processes because, you know, to a lot of people, this more qualitative side, while incredibly important, is just messy and they kind of steer away from it. So any practical tips there, I always try to get into. For surveying, do you have, do you do that in-house? Do you have a choice of software that you like to use for that? We have a couple things we use and we, a couple things we've been testing out too. Um, lately, because of GDPR, it's a little bit more of a challenge for us. So one of the things we've been testing out is putting banners on to our, into the lead space of the marketplace page that have the surveys embedded into them. That way we have less of an issue with the opt-in, but you know, I'm sure most people are, are struggling with the same thing as we are in terms of being able to proactively reaching out to the client base um, because of some of the GDPR regulations. We've got to take a step back and figure out how we do that within compliance. Yeah, I know I think everyone's grappling with that issue right now. But the good news is I'm sure like there'll be this, you know, in between era, we're trying to figure out where that line is and then we'll figure everything out and all this GDPR stuff can die down and we can get back to the doing the great work. Before we move on, because Nancy has a couple of stories that I have to make sure we get out, I have to dig in. You mentioned a little bit about your NPS program, the changes you've made in that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because NPS, and I think you'll likely agree, but please don't, is one of the most important metrics for measuring all of this great stuff we're talking about. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'd say that it has really changed the way we develop product because, like I said, in the past, the feedback we would get was from a smaller subset of clients. Only a couple times of a year, you know, we did have virtual client user groups. We had face-to-face client user groups, but those touch points were a few months in between, maybe a month in between on some. Still not enough. And it was a smaller base of clients with with instrumenting MPS and multiple touch points now with our products, we're getting this constant flow of feedback. And I, I remember when we first started seeing the verbatims, the, every, everything felt like gold to us. And we quickly integrated it into Slack so that people would be well aware, the product team would be well aware of the verbatims that were coming through and they could respond to them easily. We've now set up Slack channels to communicate with our clients more directly so I think it's opened up communication in a way we've never had before and opened up our eyes to a lot of feedback that we've never had before. And I think it's changed everything. Um, the product managers have so much more feedback to work with than ever before from a broader set of clientele. And, you know, we, a lot of times we've taken a step back and say, wow, you know, that's not what we thought. <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing, right? Because the customer feedback is everything. And the fact that our chairman really, really has pushed us very hard on this, this is something she's very much focused on. I think that that makes a huge difference because it started from the top. That makes all the difference in the world in my experience too. If you had to, you know, why do you think there's this focus on customer feedback and customer insight? I'd love to hear that from you. I think it goes back to the experience is everything. And you know, in our marketplace, I look at, uh, we, we are evaluated through a lot of analysts' reviews, uh, things like the Gartner Magic Quadrant or the Forrester Wave. And it's interesting to look back at the last five years and see a pattern emerging across these publications with all the analysts of these smaller companies 
coming out of nowhere, becoming the leaders in all these publications. And it, I mean, it used to be, you'd see the same old, same old mega vendors like us, if you will, and Oracle and Microsoft that would basically own the leadership parts of those publications. (laughs) And now you're seeing these smaller, um, more agile solutions that are probably not the same in terms of features and functions, but much more highly consumable. And I think it's changing the marketplace. It's changing the market, right? People want more consumability within the product. They want it much more accessible that's changed our business because, you know, as you know, we're a traditional, we have been a traditional face-to-face business to business business, but to be able to really be more consumable and focus on that experience, we've got to actually think like a B to C within a B. <laughs> so, um, and that's what these companies are doing is they're very focused on the experience. And I think it's really changed the marketplace and, and what customers value. No, and you've said it numerous times here, and I'm just going to kind of sum it up because I really hope that it can we can drive one takeaway home. It's from what you're saying, and that's user experience is the competitive advantage, and you can't have a user experience without that reliance on customer feedback and that overall organizational willingness to be customer first. Is that Mike summing that up correctly? Absolutely. I think it's the the days of having a great product without a great experience are long past us. You have to have both. You have to have a great product with a great experience. And if you have a, a better user experience than depth in your product, that still seems to be getting getting people ahead because essentially people just want to find what they need and, and use it quickly and, and get what they need out of the product. So Nancy, I could just dig into so many more things on NPS there, but I just have to leave it because I have to get into a couple of these stories that we're talking about beforehand. So you have this fantastic story. This podcast is starving for insight about how you've used insight with your SPS product. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I'm really excited for the audience to hear this. Sure. Um, SPSS statistics is a product a lot of people know. If you took statistics in college, you might have used it. <laughs> and um, I did take statistics in college. <laughs> so sadly, sadly enough. It, you know, it's great because it's a product that has, I would say, you know, well over a quarter million users. And it's very well known. And it was, it, it's in a market that was still growing, but we, the, our product wasn't growing with the, with the rate of the market. And a lot of, we couldn't quite figure out what we could do to really growth hack this product at first, but we started digging in actually to the NPS data. And um, when we started, we were in the negative territory. So people were definitely not enjoying the experience of using it. In fact, we discovered that about uh, 22% of the customers were not renewing because the experience was so awful. They couldn't find what they needed. The, the ability to download a trial was terrible. Um, we took a step back and we're like, all right, let's 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 just do this ourselves. Let's see how hard it is to find. Let's see how hard it is to download. And I remember we were standing in a conference room in Chicago and we had the, the digital journey mapped out of all the different places. If you searched SPSS statistics that you go to and there was 46 different sites. So over time, we just hadn't really had good digital hygiene. And so we what we had found is that we didn't have a digital journey, we had more like a scavenger hunt. Um, So it was hard to find. And if you did actually find the the right place to download the trial, the trial performance was terrible, it was failing. So it was really clear to us that we just were, we, we had a great product, 
with a terrible experience. So um, we dug into that. And it really was clear to us that clients wanted to change an experience. They wanted to change in the buying model. Even doing updates were difficult because if you had the product, you had to actually contact a sales rep to get an update. Now, 40% of our client base is under the age of 25. This is just not how people buy. <laughs> so in that age group, um, they don't want to call a sales rep, right? They want that. They want to get on an app and get it instantaneously. So we just weren't providing the right buying experience for our buyer. And so the product manager and I and a, a team of people got together and we mapped out, you know, basically let's change the consumption model from a traditional um, perpetual license to a subscription-based license. Let's integrate support in that so we make it really, really easy for clients to get support. Let's make sure that the community is integrated into that experience as well. Let's change the, the whole trial download process, make sure that's easy. Let's collapse and um, get rid of a bunch of websites so that the journey is streamlined and we gave ourselves just a couple months to do this. Now, meanwhile, there was lots of doubt about whether doing this without changing the product itself would actually hack growth. And so we, we kept pushed back. We kept saying, nope, we think, you know, we can actually get some growth by just doing this and changing the experience. And, uh, of course, it worked. We introduced it late March of 2017. Our NPS score jumped, like, 35 points almost immediately. And looking back a year later, what's interesting to see is that if you map out the clients that were buying through a perpetual license was rapidly declining. And at the same time we had introduced subscription, we were getting about twice the acceleration of new clients as we were the decline of the ones buying through the old method. And what's interesting is we weren't trading transactions. We were actually getting about 90-ish percent new. So these were clients that we didn't reach before because we didn't have the buying model they wanted. And um, we were getting significant growth plus accelerated growth because the time to acquire every 100 new clients was reduced by about 70% with this new buying model versus the old one. So we had growth, we had accelerated growth, we had new clients, we had a completely different buying experience. And now um, what's exciting is we're actually, we put a ton of new investment into the product. So in a few short weeks, we're, we're introducing a new, new UI with an onboarding experience. And so we are doing that work to grow the product now in a different way. But it's been exciting to see this thing really accelerate. That's such a great story. You know, I always say all the time, insight's the greatest growth hack of all. But you need these stories to permeate. And that's why I wanted to have Nancy on this show. She's shared this story before, but it's such a fantastic story that I wanted everyone to hear it. And I also wanted to dig in a little bit. Just quickly before I dig in, you went out for a little second there, Nancy. Did you say your costs went down 70%? Is that what you said about the 70%? Yeah, the 70% was the time it took, um, reduced time to acquire every 100 new clients was reduced by 70%. So what we essentially did was accelerated the growth of new clients because we've optimized the buying experience and it was a much faster buying experience through digital than a a traditional face-to-face buying experience. Especially for this targeted segment of buyer, that's exactly what they wanted. Yeah, no, that's huge. If you had to kind of quantify the overall result of this in terms of growth rate or revenue growth, would you be able to put a number to it, just in a ballpark range for the for everyone? 
we've seen about 200% growth <laughs> in revenue through our digital channel on this. And it's the only way we've gotten growth on the product in general, because when, like I said, if you looked at uh, and compared the way people are buying those licenses, the only lift and growth has been through this new subscription model. So if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have any growth on the product. We would have remained flat. I mean, the business, we would have kept the business we had, but it wouldn't, we wouldn't have seen any lift to that business. No, and that's huge for a product of this size, a 200% lift. And it wasn't made by adding more features. It wasn't done by finding, you know, the best Craigslist, you know, make a light joke on the Airbnb famous hack. It was about, you know, looking at your buyers and figuring out what the problem was and then coming up with a solution. Absolutely. So I have to ask, Nancy, you mentioned a few couple of really good things. You realized, you know, your growth rate of the product was a little bit under market and they had more of this scavenger hunt experience as opposed to a more streamlined linear experience. Mm-hmm. And you, you figured out that the audience that you wanted to go after or were going after, you know, buyers in the age of 25 didn't like this old model. How did you come up with all that insight? A lot of it was NPS comments, a ton of survey. Um, I was lucky to have a partner in crime with a product manager, Doug Stauber, who knew his business, knew his clients, um, constantly was serving them to validate that feedback. Um, But it really was a lot of the NPS comments that led us to that and gave us the validation that we thought, right? So, I mean, we could kind of see some patterns, but um, the verbatims and the feedback and the surveys that the product teams did really helped us validate that thought. And then, of course, when we ran the sprint over the period of time to uh, change the consumption model and introduce it, then the results validated everything for us. Wow. Okay. So just to kind of sum that up, you were able to hone in on the signal, i.e. it was the business model that wasn't working for this market, and validate that through the year use primarily of NPS? Correct. Right? It was the, it really, NPS, I think, opened up the world feedback to us and um, having that especially tied into Slack where a lot of, we, where we spend a lot of our day and, and seeing that pop up in, in, in the world that we live in, which is Slack constantly. Um, I think that's helped a lot. So we integrated that feedback. So it was, it was flowing very easily to the product teams and they could see it coming in and it, it was an eye opener. Can you tell us a little bit about how you integrated the MPS with the Slack? Did you create a Slack specific MPS specific channel in Slack, or is it automatic every time a new MPS comment comes in, it's automatically posted to Slack? Can you tell us a little bit more about that setup? Um, I don't know if I could tell you all the technical um, background of how it was integrated, but when a new uh, comment would come in, it would notify the product manager so that they knew to go take a look at it. So it was integrated directly into Slack. So they would get a Slack notification. We do have Slack channels as well. And then plus we've opened up Slack channels directly with our client base, which makes it really easy for them to communicate with a lot of the product and development team and even the support teams. Okay, so whenever there was a new NPS comment or response would come in, it would automatically notify the product manager. And would it get posted to like a general Slack channel that the product team was on as well? It would get posted to their Slack channel for the product, I believe. And you said you have so some... So everybody, everybody was getting constant feedback and that. I think that floodgate opening up was world-changing for us. No, that's why I'm really digging in on the how you you did this. The results are so impressive that I want to make sure I can t- get some super actionable nuggets for the audience here. And 
from the people, you said you have some Slack channels now for direct communication with your customers. Did you select that from the NPS responses? Does everyone who's answered NPS get invited? How does that work? No, I think it's uh, there's a couple of products that are doing it. Every product is doing it, but they're opening up, especially when we do an early release of a product. We put the Slack channel out there so people can communicate directly with us on their experience. And um, the product teams and the support teams can engage directly with the clients. So it's not pervasive across all of our products, but it is something we're looking to do more of. So for example, when we released um, one of the products I had last year was Watson Explorer. And when we released a digital version or a community version of that, we opened up a Slack channel because we were anxious to, to get the feedback and interact from the people that had tried it. So we put that out there so they can engage directly with us. And because um, some of the early products like that one hadn't been instrumented for NPS yet. So we wanted to make sure we had a good engagement channel with the, with the consumers of the technology. No, absolutely. I think that's, that's huge. Do you know out of curiosity, and I can get this information maybe from you later and put it in the show notes, do you know what MPS tool that you guys are using right now? Or have you built it in-house? We use, we use Medallia. Yeah, okay, perfect. Always have to get those suggestions in there. Before we move on, we've already gone a little bit over time, as seems to be my norm. My sweet spot I'm trying for is 20 to 30 minutes, yet I've probably never hit that because my interview guests are just so fantastic and I have to get every little bit of insight out of them. I do want to ask Nancy maybe some rapid fire personal development questions because insight is both on a personal side and a business side and often they go together. I have to ask you quickly, Nancy, if you could define a great user experience because we've heard that word come up so many times in one or two sentences, how would you define that? (laughs) I think it's a user experience that gets you to that aha moment of the value of that product very, very quickly. And the reason why I think that's important is a lot of our tools are, you know, either it's data science or information integration or um, database or hybrid data management systems. It's really important that the client understands immediately the value of that product and how we do that through onboarding and, and different tools to help them do that. I think that that really sums up a good experience if they can get that, ah, I get it. This is why I want, I need this product. That to me is a good user experience. No, I think that's a fantastic litmus test. If if your new customer or user gets into your product and they're not immediately, I get this. If that's not the response, then that's not a great user experience. All right. So kind of going into more rapid fire style questions here, just because I don't Want to want to be able to wrap this up and not keep this? Although I'd love to keep talking to Nancy, and maybe we'll have to have her back for another episode. Can you tell me quickly? Business intuition is so important about these things. Can you give me a quick story about how you were able to develop it or refine it over time? Wow, <laughs> a quick story about intuition. Um, I think one of the things is we were working on growing our database. And uh, this DB2 is our database. It's been around for, gosh, I want to say close to 30 years. And my intuition was that a lot of the newer, younger generation of application developers really weren't giving it the time of day. And if they could see it, if they could use it, if they could get their hands on it, they would change their mind. And so I actually went in search, (laughs) spent hours and hours watching YouTube videos of different developers talking about database and found this uh, found this developer, young developer who is uh, making hundreds of videos on database about pretty much 
everybody but DB2 was Mongo and Microsoft and Oracle. I mean, pretty much everybody but us reached out to him, watched a couple of his videos, reached out to him after watching endless videos of developers talking about database and said, hey, you know, why aren't why are you doing anything with DB2? <laughs> and it really, his response, I think, captured what our challenge was, which was, yeah, it never really occurred to me. You know, it was like, I thought that was like my dad's database kind of a thing. When I gave him access to the product, his response was, hey, this is really cool technology. And so I really felt like we needed the right spokesperson to pull in the audience And we actually had him do a number of videos and we put him on the front of our marketplace page, saw about 85% increase in engagement. And um, consistently, since we've introduced this new community edition that he actually introduced for us and did a a ton of videos for us, we've seen 60% plus of people that are new to DB2. So making it more accessible and then finding somebody that they could relate to that said, Hey, I've never tried this before. And it's really cool. It was like a huge change for us. So it was really just my intuition that made me feel like we we just needed to get the right spokesperson to reach out to this cohort community. So it wasn't just us talking about it It was really more of a, a third party. And that totally worked. Yes, Nancy, thank you so much for that. I completely realized me asking you to rapid fire that question. It's just, it is that's such a great story. I want to dive in so much more, but we'll have to leave that for now. I think that's a great example. And, you know, getting more, you know, into the shorter questions. Uh, hopefully these ones are a little bit easier too. Where do you do your best thinking? <laughs> I would say um, either in the shower. I seem to always come up with great ideas in the shower. <laughs> I think most people say that, but also on my bike. Because I think my head's clear and thoughts just flow creatively with the wind on my face and the trail in my below my wheels. (laughs) Yeah, no, shower and exercise have definitely been very common answers. So I think we have a lot to learn there. How do you make decisions? What's your decision making process? Do you have one? (laughs) You know, my husband and I were just talking about this yesterday. I'm a pretty decisive person. Um, If I've got data, uh, you know, a small sampling of data, I want to try something, right? So I'm pretty decisive when it comes to, I think there's a pattern here, let's try it. I don't like to make any final decisions until we try something. So I'm pretty decisive about that as well. So I like to do a lot more experimenting. I guess that makes me a perfect growth hacker. But overall, I'm pretty decisive. I'll take the data and let's go for it. (laughs) No, I love that. Speaking as someone who swings a little in the indecisive realm, do you have one like like tactical tip to get people to make those decisions faster? Oh gosh. Uh, or something that helps you? Or is that just is that just an eight to, to who you are? And that's fair too. I think it's probably an eight to who I am. I mean, there's definitely people who want to do spend a lot more time analyzing things. I don't. If I have enough data to test a theory, I want to go for it. Um, but that is a personality trait, I think, because there's some people you cannot get them to move any faster. They want to do much more analysis. No, absolutely. So what habit do you attribute most to your success then? <laughs> I think tenacity. <laughs> maybe that's a characteristic, but uh, but it may be more of a habit. No, it's a habit. It's a, yeah, it's a habit. I think, I think it's both. The willingness to evolve and change, I think, has been really key mm. to my success. I mean, when I first started looking at growth hacking a couple of years ago, um, it was really out of desperation because I was scared out of my mind about launching this SaaS product and what I could do to actually make it grow and started looking around and finding these stories. 
and at some point decided, this is what I want to do. This is my tribe. This is, this is where I want to take things. And this is the way I want to evolve myself to. And I think, you know, like the company I work for IBM, you know, to be around and stay relevant, you got to evolve, you got to transform and you got to constantly pick where your next target is. And I, I think that that's contributed a lot to where I am today is that willingness to pick that target and evolve and figure out what's next. Absolutely. And that's what Danny, I referenced an episode I did earlier with Danny, our mutual friend from Growth Hackers. And we talked really about that growth mindset a little bit more there. Absolutely. That willingness to learn and change. And I think that's a habit. I think it's innate, but I think it's also something that you can learn as well. So I think that's great. What's one habit, a new habit that you're trying to incorporate into your life right now? Oh, boy. I, you know, I keep saying I want to, I want to keep reading more. Thank God for Audible because I'm one of those people who can't sit down for long periods of time. And so that has been a godsend for me because <laughs> now I can actually, you know, load up my book and get on my bike and do two things at once. You know, I feel like I'm a constantly multitasking. So sitting down and just reading and doing nothing, that's a huge challenge for me. So like I said, thank God for Audible. <laughs> I think that's a common uh, common trait among very driven, successful, ambitious people. I am also addicted to Audible, best invention ever. Although sometimes I have to really pay attention to the narrator voice. The narrator voice is very important. Yeah. And so that brings us to the final question, and it's right on topic. If you had to choose, what is the single best piece of content you've ever consumed, whether that's a book or a blog post, or a podcast, or a video, um, you know, in the business or personal growth sphere, of course. That's so hard to answer, you know, because there's such a, a video. <laughs> like, I mean, there's the great love stories, like uh, Captain Crowley's Mandolin, which is a great book. It's one of my favorite books. It was a terrible movie, but um, the book was amazingly and beautifully written. The book that I'm in about halfway through right now, which is on the Medici's, um, I'm a bit. I've, I'm falling in love with that whole Florentine Renaissance period and the people that made that happen. The Medici's and the Borgias and the the Italian Renaissance families like that is amazing. <laughs> so, and gosh, podcasts. You know, I have gotten totally sucked into a series called Someone Knows Something. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard that one, but it's really more of a murder mystery. And I have to go back and forth to, to Michigan a lot to see my daughter who's out there. And that has just, there's some times when I get there and I'm like, oh, I probably could have used another half an hour driving. <laughs> but um, So I don't know that I could answer one thing. I think uh, I like such a variety of things that it's tough. But right now I'm completely obsessed with the whole Italian Renaissance period. So anything in that time period, I'm totally loving. Yeah, no, I know. I'm putting everyone in a very difficult hotspot question there. It's, it's a tough one to answer. And I love how you had a diverse range of stories there. I haven't listened to someone know something, but my background's law. So all of my friends in law are absolutely obsessed with it. So you're you love it. If you need an extra driving time, you know, something's good. I'm gonna have to try that. You have to try it. It's pretty awesome. All right. I have drive ahead of me this weekend. It's definitely going to get downloaded. Well, Nancy, thank you so, so much for being here. There's just so many actionable nuggets and wisdom that you've shared with everyone today from, you know, high strategy to get down dirty and this is how you do it. So thank you so much for coming on here. And it's always so much fun to talk with you. 
You're very welcome. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I know. And if people want to connect with you online, is there any particular place that people can go that you prefer? Twitter, email, LinkedIn, website? Yeah, um, Twitter is always a great place to catch me. LinkedIn is a great place to catch me. And my email, if you want to get in touch to, is my name, Nancy Hensley at us.ibm.com. Perfect. I'll make sure to include all three of those links in the show notes as well. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. 